Well, in our study of this New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles that we've titled Turning the World Upside Down, its author, a man named Luke, has been recording, among other things, a series of miraculous conversions. You might remember that there were 3,000 people on that very first day of Pentecost, the first Pentecost following Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. 3,000 believed the message of the gospel as Peter preached it that day. And then... uh, 5,000 men, not not including women and children, but we're told that 5,000 men uh, following the, the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple uh, believed the message of the gospel, put their faith in Christ. Uh, then the surprising conversions of the Samaritans and that Ethiopian eunuch through the ministry of Philip. And then that radical conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who had been severely persecuting the church, the Gentile Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion and a God-fearer, but yet who hadn't heard the gospel and didn't know Jesus until Peter arrived at his home. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that international crowd um, of Jews and Gentiles in Syrian Antioch, where uh, God just did an amazing work, and people are coming to faith in Christ just right and left. And so where we are right now in the book of Acts, there there are tens of thousands of people who have already believed the message of the gospel, who have transferred their trust to Jesus Christ. In chapter 13, which we'll see next week, Luke's going to tell the story of a, a great forward step as Saul, whom we will come to know as Paul, uh, and Barnabas set out on their first formal missionary journey. So the gospel is spreading and it's advancing. But here, in chapter 12 this week, Luke details a, a significant setback brought about by the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter. Now, each of these men were apostles. They were leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, it must have uh, severely shaken the church in Jerusalem and, and felt like a double assault on them uh, and on the mission of the gospel. The destructive power of Satan and the, the saving power of God are in full display in chapter 12. I'm not going to have you read it this morning aloud, which is usually our tradition um, I was thinking about doing it because I let you off easy last week with only four verses and thought this might be good for balance. But well, we're going to look at the whole chapter um, this week, chapter 12. And so I uh, hope you'll open up your Bibles. There are Bibles in your uh, chairs, and maybe you have your own electronic devices. If you haven't turned that on yet, please do that. Let's begin then in, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12 with what I'm just calling Herod's diabolical design, Herod's diabolical design. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, as you read the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, in the book of Acts, it can be confusing when you read about Herod, because just as with the Caesars, there were a lot of them. Uh, in fact, you, you might read about one Herod, and then you read that he dies, and but, oh, but oh, oh, here he pops up over here again. There he is. I thought he was, I thought he died, and then that one dies, and there's another one. It's like, uh, you know, whack-a-mole. They're just, they're just, 
Herod's popping up all over the place. The first Herod that we met in the Gospels was Herod the Great. And this was the Herod who uh, was in power at the time of Jesus' birth. And we read about him in Luke chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 2. That's the Herod who, who unsuccessfully tried to kill the newborn Jesus uh, soon after he was born by ordering the execution of, of all of those baby boys two years of age and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem. That's in Matthew 2, 1 through 18. The Herodian dynasty... Um, was a large, we would say, um, extremely dysfunctional family. Um, the story of the, the Herodian dynasty reads like the very worst of the Game of Thrones. I mean, there, there was no lack of uh, palace intrigue, of murders, of sexual escapades, of incestuous relationships. Uh, it was kind of a, a mess. You would say they were pretty whack because of all of that. There are a lot of detailed nuances, and so I'm I'm not going to bore you with all of it, but I'm going to simplify it for you. So there was Herod the Great, and then the next Herod that we encounter in the New Testament is is one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, Herod Antipas. Um, Herod Antipas is the one before whom Jesus briefly stood before the crucifixion, Luke 23. Every reference in the Gospels to Herod following the birth narratives uh, of Jesus and Matthew and Luke is to Herod Antipas. He, he's the big Herod in the Gospels. Now, Herod Antipas had a nephew whose name was Agrippa, uh, who became known to history as Herod Agrippa I. And this is the Herod that we're going to meet today in chapter 12. In time, Herod Agrippa had a son who became known as Agrippa II, the Herod before whom the Apostle Paul will stand in Acts chapter 25. But Agrippa I was raised in Rome, uh, where in his childhood he became close friends with two boys, each of whom would later become emperors of Rome, uh, Caligula and Claudius, or Claudio. Uh, Caligula first made Agrippa the governor of regions in the north of Israel. And then when Caligula died in A.D. 41, Claudius succeeded him and, and gave to Agrippa Judea and Samaria as well. And by doing that, he essentially reconstituted the entire kingdom over which Agrippa's grandfather, Herod the Great, had ruled. Uh, it was Claudius Caesar who gave Herod Agrippa permission to use the title king, and so we know him as King Herod. But what was it that, that motivated Agrippa's diabolical design to harass or to persecute the church? Uh, we read there at the beginning of chapter 12 that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. What did he expect to gain by doing that? Well, you'll remember that uh, the first persecution of the church had been instigated by the temple authorities, the priests, the Sadducees. Uh, that first persecution resulted in the imprisonment of Peter and John. Uh, later, the most popular of the religious parties, the Pharisees, um, joined in attacking the church under that cruel campaign of Saul of Tarsus. And now Herod Agrippa, with the political power of Rome, uh, behind him joins the active persecution. And, and as a result, I think it must have felt to the disciples as if um, opposition was just coming from all around them, 360 degrees. 
But once again, why? Why did he do this? Well, we know that the Jewish masses hated Herod and his family profoundly. Uh, they represented Rome. They were oppressors. Knowing that, that Herod, knowing that, Herod Agrippa I took every opportunity to ingratiate himself uh, with the Jews, to win their affection. You've heard the expression, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, and, and that really describes Agrippa. When he was in Rome, he was a cosmopolitan Roman. But when he was in Jerusalem, uh, he portrayed himself as an observant Jew by conscientiously observing the law, by visiting the temple daily, and and very publicly participating in the Jewish feasts and festivals. And, and, and yet it was an all, all an act on his part. Uh, Herod's ambitions were, were neither spiritual nor even religious, but purely, purely political. Uh, for every governor serving under the Roman Empire, wherever they found themselves in the empire, the, the foundational expectation was that, that they would mi- maintain the, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. They just had to keep things quiet and peaceful. And, and for that reason, any person, any group that threatened the peace uh, or was perceived to be a threat to the peace or could be made to look like a threat to the peace became a legitimate target for oppression. Uh, This time, Agrippa would ingratiate himself to the Jews by persecuting the church. And so he had James, the brother of John, killed by the sword. That was a, a euphemism in those days for having been beheaded publicly. James and John, you remember, were numbered among the 12 apostles. We were, they were included in Jesus' inner circle of three, along with Peter. Their father's name was Zebedee. Um, Jesus called the two of them the sons of thunder, which uh, seems to me like a great name for an indie rock band, uh, the sons of thunder. J- just imagine that all that... All that James had seen and experienced as he followed Jesus. He had seen all of his miracles. He, he had heard all of his teaching. Um, he was one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. And along with being eyewitnesses to all of that, he was also with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane. He had a front row seat for all of the ministry of Jesus. And we, we may ask why it was that James had to die, though Peter was spared. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, we read the account of an audacious request that came to Jesus from James and John. Beginning at verse 35 of chapter 10, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Every time I read that verse, I can't think of a, can't help thinking of a little kid, you know, saying, Mommy, I want you to do whatever I ask you to do. Moms, can you hear that? And he said to them, what, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And the cup that Jesus would drink, of course, was the cup of the wrath of God. 
It was the cup that he prayed might pass from him that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the baptism that Jesus would undergo was his own brutal death by crucifixion. And, and in this interchange, Jesus told them that his experience would be also theirs. And he didn't say when, he didn't say how, but on that occasion, Jesus prophesied their deaths. John lived to an old age. We actually have no record of his death, but but James died young, and he died by the sword. We all wonder, don't we, about how and when we'll die. I mean, we all think about that at one time or another. Uh, We all know that we will, unless Jesus comes for us first. And and here's what I believe about that. You are essentially invincible. You say, yes, you are essentially invincible. Until, until God has accomplished in you and through you all that he intends. When that time comes, he's going to take you home. King David wrote in Psalm 139, You, God, saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. So in eternity past, God already knew the day that you would be born. He already knew the day that you would die, and he knew every day in between. He knew everything about you, everything about your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, which we're going to get to very soon, the Apostle Paul is going to say this about King David. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Did you get that? It was only when David had served God's purpose in his generation that he died. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for we are God's masterpiece, He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. See, God knows his plan for you. He has some good things he's uniquely designed to accomplish through you, things he planned in eternity past for you to do now in your generation, and when those things are done, you're out of here, and not until. We might be tempted to say, well, poor James, poor James, he lost his head. I'm pretty sure James wouldn't say that. Of this, we can be confident. James had run his race. He had finished his course. And Paul taught that for believers in Jesus Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I think when your head is absent from your body, you are absent from your body, wouldn't you say? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we believe that at the, at the very moment of James' death, he went to be with Jesus, just like that. He was in the presence of his Savior. And one thing I know that is true about every Christian who's ever passed into the presence of the Lord is that as much as we might miss them this side of heaven, they wouldn't want to come back. And so it was with James, to depart and to be with Christ is better by far than all this world has to offer. Amen? It is. From Herod's diabolical design, then, Luke moves to describing the church's persistent prayer. Just two verses, verses 5 and 12. In those verses, he says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Many were gathered together and were praying. What does earnest prayer look like? I was texting with someone here in the church this past week about a matter of concern, and I said to them, pray hard. Pray hard. And the the reply came back, well, what does that mean to pray hard? I think the word that Luke employs to characterize the prayer of the church on Peter's behalf here illustrates what it means to pray hard. The word is ektenos. It, it, it can describe a rope or a chain that, that is fully stretched, fully extended, almost to the breaking point without any slack. And when it's applied to prayer, ektenos describes a posture that's intense, it's strenuous, you might say it's strained, and it is, it is unrelenting. Understand the situation. Here are two communities, the world and the church. They're faced off against one another. Each of, each of them wielding their weapons on the one side was, was the authority of Herod, the power of Rome, the power of the sword. On the other side with the church was the church armed only with prayer and otherwise, humanly speaking, powerless. And yet the spiritual power unleashed by their prayer was more than a match for Herod, more than a match for the entire Roman Empire, more than a match for all the gates of hell. And they believed and they hoped that that somehow, whether by a miracle or otherwise, God would bring about Peter's release in answer to their prayers. So they gave themselves to actenos. They gave themselves to praying hard, to persistent, fervent, earnest prayer. And they were willing to fully wield that one weapon of warfare that God had put in their hands. Someone put it this way, an angel fetched Peter from the prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And so that leads us then to Peter's divine deliverance in verses 6 and following. Here's verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out. That's Peter. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, uh, and two, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, according to Jewish tradition, you wonder why, why didn't, why didn't Herod just lop off Peter's head right after James's? But according to Jewish tradition, no prisoner could be executed during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was that week-long observance that followed the day of Passover. So, so Herod went to unusual lengths to, to ensure that Peter was securely imprisoned, securely detained until the end of the feast. And so the events that we're looking at here um, take place on the very last night of his imprisonment. The next morning, Herod's intent was to have a brief show trial and then to kill Peter in the same way that he had killed James. So picture this. Herod directed that Peter be guarded 24-7 by four rotating squads, each consisting of four trained, armed Roman soldiers. Those squads were known as quartirions. And Herod clearly didn't want to take any chances with this particular prisoner. The memory of Peter and the uh, the other apostles slipping out of a secure prison by mysterious means had been a source of embarrassment to the authorities, and it had to have still been uh, fresh in Herod's mind. So all week, Peter had been chained to a soldier on his right hand and on his left, and while two sentries stood guard at the door of the prison. 
And yet, knowing that if Herod had his way, he would be executed in the morning, don't miss that Peter is sound asleep. Sound asleep. How could he sleep? How could he sleep? Now, I don't know about you, but, but I'm not sure I'd be sleeping if I knew my head was going to be detached from my body when the sun came up. But Peter slept. And, and I can only think of two basic reasons that Peter was able to sleep that night. First, his body could rest because his mind was at rest. The prophet Isaiah had written, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Peter was at peace with whatever his sovereign God had decreed for him. To go on living would be to continue to proclaim the gospel. To die would be to be saved in the ultimate sense by the power of that same gospel. And to pass into the presence of Jesus. So for Peter, it was a win-win situation. But I think there's a second possible reason that he was able to sleep that night. One one day on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, this is after Jesus had been raised from the dead, the risen Lord Jesus had said to him personally, Peter, when you are old, when you are old, you will stretch forth your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not want to go. And thus the Lord had spoken, signifying thereby by what death he would glorify God. Well, here's a newsflash. Peter was not yet old. He was still a relatively young man. So so it's possible that Peter slept soundly in simple confidence in that personal promise of the Lord Jesus to him. In my studies this week, I came across this statement from an elder saint from a previous generation. He wrote, Oh, that God's people might know the calm rest of faith. Our lives are in his hands. He is over us and no enemy can harm us. Nothing can touch us without his will. Reading on at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. He said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, the Bible tells us that angels are God's messengers. The the Hebrew word for angel and the Greek word for angel both mean messenger. They're messengers, they're ministering spirits, so we can be confident that when an angel appears in the pages of Scripture, or when an angel happens to interrupt your schedule, interrupt your life, he has been dispatched from the throne room of God. So notice what happens next. First, an angel of the Lord, it says, stood next to Peter. How'd he get in there? How'd he get in there? Is it... To angels, locked doors or iron gates are, are no obstacle whatsoever, are they? And next, a light shone in the cell. And why was that? I'm pretty sure that this wasn't just a little nightlight that the angel brought with him and plugged into the wall there in the cell. Or even a flashlight to help Peter find his socks on the floor, right? Uh, on multiple occasions in the Bible, when, when, when angels show up, there's a presence of light, isn't there? And as is in, as is the case of, of the angelic appearance of shepherds outside Bethlehem that night that Jesus was born. 
It says there that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The word that's used there is, again, 360 degrees. is shown all around them. Um, and the light that shone in Peter's prison cell, I'm pretty sure, was probably also the light of the glory of the Lord reflected off of an angel who otherwise stood in the very presence of God. You know, some people, my wife included, are very sensitive to light when they're sleeping. How many, for how many of you that, is that true? You gotta have the light, it's gotta be dark. Here's her brother saying, yeah, that's, that's me too. Must be a family thing. So, so we have this, we have this uh, columnar fan in our bedroom and it's got a little green light on it that tells you that it's on. And, and we have to have that covered at night in our bedroom. Cause it's gonna bug her. It's going to keep her awake. So, so, so it's interesting, isn't it, that the light that is cast by the angel doesn't wake the guards. What's up with that? I mean, if somebody walks into your room, flips on the light when you're sleeping, you're going to wake up, right? Doesn't even cause them to stir. And it would seem that, that, that the light may have been then just for Peter, right? First, to awaken him, and second, to help him see his way out of the prison. And third, the, the, Luke says the angel struck Peter. And, and the word Luke employs can, can mean apparently a, like a gentle nudge, or it can just mean a powerful punch. And, and I kind of prefer the latter. Um, I like my version of that story. We might say that, that he struck him hard enough to knock his chains off, because that's what happens. And it seems that Peter had been sleeping very soundly. There there was a, an urgency in the angel's command, come on, man, wake up, get up. It's time to go, get dressed, and, and let's get out of here. He tells him to wrap his cloak around him. And, and I'm, you know, I, I grew up on Star Trek. And anybody remember the cloaking device? I, I'm kind of picturing, you know, Peter wrapping that cloak, and he just disappears like, like uh, Frodo with the ring, right? He just, boom, he's gone. So, so Peter follows him, follows the angel, but he doesn't believe that what he's experiencing is real. He thought he was seeing a vision. I, I don't know the exact difference between a vision and a dream. But, but why would Peter have thought that it wasn't real? Was, it, was he just still groggy um, from having been awakened from a deep sleep or, or was something else going on? I mean, I wonder, is, is it possible that, that it was in Peter's best interest uh, because the angel knew him, uh, you know, for the angel to have kept him in something like a dream state so that old Peter wouldn't pop his mouth off and, and awaken anyone else in the prison? I don't know. Perhaps. Speculative. Let's read on. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So notice, they they passed silently, one guard, and then the next. The iron gate to the street opens of its own accord, it says. The Greek word there is automate. So yeah, you guessed it. It, it opened automatically. Now, I'm not sure if the angel had a, like a remote control. Pretty sure he didn't. But here, here's the takeaway. There is no door. There is no gate. 
There is no obstacle that God cannot open for you if it is his will to do so. None. There is no obstacle you're facing in your life right now. There is no barrier in front of you, what appears to be a barrier to you, that God cannot cause to open before you if it is his will to do so. Verse 11 says that when Peter came to himself, there was no doubt in his mind that the Lord had sent his angel and rescued him from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were anticipating. In verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported, reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Well, the Mary in verse 12, Mary's a popular name in the Bible, isn't it? Mary, Mary in verse 12 is the mother of John Mark, who later wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin, so so Mary would have been his aunt. One of the things that, that we can conclude right away is that Mary was probably a person of means, um, that the house might have been fairly large, evidenced by the fact that you would enter through a gate into a courtyard before you arrived at the actual door of the house, which in those days was entirely a luxury feature. Some biblical scholars speculate that the upper room where, where Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples and, and where the disciples hid for fear of the Jews following Jesus' crucifixion may have been in this very house. So in this spacious home, a large number of believers were gathered, engaged in prayer. Remember, this is these are in the wee hours of the morning, the middle of the night. It's not just an evening prayer meeting, you know, where you start at 6 and you leave at 7.30 regardless. Right? These people were, were all about it all night long. And Peter came to the house, he, he knocked on the door at the gateway, and, and this servant girl, Rhoda, uh, her name means little rose, came to answer. And notice at verse 14 that she recognized Peter's voice, but, but in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I think she was probably about 13 and blonde. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Because here's Peter. Mm, 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 mm. Well, Peter's here. Mm, 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 mm. And their first response was to say, you are, little Rose, you are out of your freaking mind. Some of them speculated that it wasn't really Peter at the gate at all, but rather his angel. And the, the Jews believed uh, in those days of, what in what we today would call guardian angels, who were sometimes thought to resemble the very human beings that they protected. And this belief obviously was not rooted in Scripture, but in tradition. But it's ironic, isn't it? Isn't it? While the big iron gate of the prison opened automatically to let Peter out, he was unable to get the, past the gate of, of the home of his friends. And Why? Because these men and women who were praying persistently for Peter's release could not comprehend that their prayers had actually been answered. 
And this paradox often marks our own prayers, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that God's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power, that it's a work within us. And yet we can approach prayer in a way that precludes the possibility of practical answers. Read on in verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, very quickly, we can only imagine the pure joy, the amazement that must have overcome those prayers in that moment. Imagine that, I think that their their exuberance was, was the reason that, that Peter had to motion to them to, to tone it down, to kind of, hey, quiet, guys. So they didn't unnecessarily attract the, the attention of any soldiers that happened to be patrolling the streets, because he probably thought by that time they, they'd figured out that he was gone, and they were looking for him. He was like, keep it down. Tell James and the brothers that I've been released. Tell James and the brothers that I've been released. This James, you say, well, I thought James just lost his head a week ago. This James is the brother of Jesus, who later became the head of the the Jerusalem church, uh, presided over the Jerusalem council, which we'll come to soon in chapter 15. So then Peter goes underground. And And this is kind of one of the last times we see Peter in the book of of the Acts of the Apostles. He kind of disappears. He goes underground. Uh, We don't know where he went. We don't see him again for another couple of years. Biblical scholars speculate about where he went, but the fact is nobody knows. Finally, in verses 18 to 19, Herod's distasteful demise. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Under Roman law, a guard who allowed his prisoner to escape was subject to the same penalty that the escaped prisoner would have suffered. So when Peter wasn't found, those 16 soldiers who had been assigned to Peter's security detail, were executed, presumably by public beheading. Verse 19 says that Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea, spent time there. The city of Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea by the sea, was was built by Agrippa's uncle Philip. And if you've been to Israel, chances are you've visited the ruins of this city. In its day, it was spectacular. It was a very Roman city in in its culture and in its extravagance. And the historian Josephus recorded that the reason that that on this occasion Agrippa went down to Caesarea was to celebrate spectacles, that is, games. You might think about the Olympic Games contest in honor of Caesar. Now Herod was angry, we read, with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Same word, struck, same same word that the angel <laughs> struck Peter, because in this case, Herod Agrippa did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, we're not told at all why it was that Agrippa was angry with these two cities of Tyre and Sidon. They were located in the region known as Phoenicia, which uh, we know today as Lebanon. Interestingly, they're, they're mentioned often in Scripture, these two cities, but they're never mentioned in a positive light. They're always in, uh, presented negatively. Both of them were large commercial port cities, um, but they depended on the irrigated land of Judea for food because they just lacked in their region an agricultural sector. And consequently, they were, in a sense, uh, at Herod's mercy for his provision. So, so understand on this occasion that, that if the people calling Herod a god were the delegation from Tyre and Sidon, it's very likely that they would have been flattering him for merely political purposes. However, the Roman historian Josephus records that on the second day of the spectacles, clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. Now again, if you've visited Israel and you've visited Caesarea by the sea, you've probably been in this very theater. It struck me as I was reading this. I, I may have stood right where Agrippa was standing or or where he was now seated on a throne. And, and he's wearing this amazing Robe. It says there the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. And you, you can imagine that they're seeing this guy, and he's just sparkling in the sun, and they're saying, that's a god. Straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us, they added, and if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious, and at once he felt a stab of pain in his heart. He also was gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. Overcome by more intense pain, they hastened to convey him to his palace, and the word flashed about to everyone that he was on the verge of death. Exhausted after five straight days by the pain in his abdomen, he departed this life in the 54th year of his life and the seventh year of his reign. Gives new meaning, doesn't it, to the expression touched by an angel. Um, He he was struck down by an angel. He died of, of an infestation of worms that ate him alive. Modern scientists have theorized that what his diagnosis would have been today, some have suggested the likelihood of a ruptured cyst uh, on, on the kidneys caused by tapeworms that are native to the Asian countries. Others point to an infection brought about by an intestinal roundworms, which grow as long as 10 to 16 inches and feed on the nutrient fluids in the intestines. And Apparently, these roundworms can form bunches that in turn obstruct the bowels, causing incredible pain. And then comes copious vomiting of worms, and then death. And you're welcome. Anybody, anybody want to go to lunch? Let's go. Spaghetti. <laughs> you are a sick person. In the message, 
In the message paraphrase of the Bible, Eugene Peterson, uh, his rendition of verse 23 reads like a line from a Charles Dickens novel. It says of Herod Agrippa, down he went, rotten to the core, a maggoty old man, if there ever was one, he died. Well, that's how he died, but why did he die? Luke says that he died because he did not give God the glory. While his subjects were glorifying him as a God, he didn't correct them, but he received for himself the glory that belongs only to the one true God who will not share his glory with another. At verse 24, there is this epilogue. It was called an epilogue, but the word of God, it says, increased and multiplied. Key word there, but. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Luke's telling the story of the growth of the church, the advance of the gospel in the first 34, 30 to 40 years following Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24 compares to two previous summary statements that mark off definable sections in Luke's account, Acts 6-7 and uh, Acts 9-31. But in relation to the entire book, chapter 12, verse 24, marks the end of the mission to the Jews. It doesn't mean that, that there wasn't an ongoing mission to the Jews. It doesn't mean that, that people weren't still evangelizing Jews. It just means that, that what, where the mission of the church now turns, especially in terms of Luke's telling of it, uh, is toward a concerted mission to the Gentiles. In relationship to chapter 12 alone, it it contrasts the progress of the gospel with the death of James and the self-imposed exile of Peter. And for the church, think about this, for the church, this chapter moves at the beginning from tragedy to the end in triumph, just a complete reversal of the church's circumstances. In his commentary on Acts, the, the late John Stott summarized Chapter 12, he said, this chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. And such is the power of God, he writes, to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride cast down. See, tyrants today know that those things are true of them as well. As we close, I'd like to challenge you to consider what this passage has taught us, in particular about the power of persistent prayer. And we can laugh at the humor of the the praying church that's in disbelief when their prayers are actually answered. But don't forget, they were praying. They were praying. They were praying hard. They, They fully extended themselves in unrelenting prayer for Peter. See, God has given to the church a few powerful weapons for conducting spiritual warfare. Among them are the Word of God, which which Paul called the sword of the Spirit. And then there's prayer, and then there's the spoken word of of our testimony of personal faith in Jesus Christ. It is no secret that in our world today, we as followers of Jesus are facing increasing opposition from every side, from every sector, whether political or social or educational or religious. And the dark clouds that that warn of a coming storm are gathering, are they not? 
And you and I can, can often feel powerless. You say, what, what can we do to affect any change? And, and indeed, in ourselves, we are powerless. But God is not powerless. God is still as powerful as he was in the days of Peter. All power in heaven and on earth belong to him. And the one who possesses all that power invites us to pray. The Apostle Paul wrote, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he's done. Then, then you will experience God's peace. Then you'll be able to sleep at night. God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. See, you may be facing some overwhelming circumstances today of your own in your own life. It, it may seem to you in regard to those circumstances that there's no way out. You need a miracle. God knows. And he's listening and he's waiting for you to call on him. Let me just review the, the model presented, the model of prayer presented to us by the church in Acts 12. First, they prayed persistently and unrelentingly. Why? Because they were in desperation. They needed a miracle. There was nothing they could do to reverse Peter's circumstances. And so they prayed. It's all they had left to them was prayer. Secondly, they prayed together with other believers. They agreed together in prayer. And there's power when we do that. Jesus said, if, if two of you agree on anything, it will be done for them by their Father in heaven. We need to pray together. Third, it says they, they didn't allow their own lack of faith to prevent them from, from praying. There's humility when we come to pray. We say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what, I don't even know how to pray. It reminds me of that man who said to Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Because what God is capable of is so far beyond our expectations, so far beyond our understanding, so far beyond our own ability. That when we pray, we come with humility. And fourth, they trusted God for the outcome. They, they surrendered to his sovereign will and purpose. And then they just trusted him for what he would do. So often we try to instruct God, don't we? And we tell him all the things that he should do. And sometimes we just need to pray with surrender and say, God, this is your thing. You called me into this life, and you know the circumstances I'm facing, and so I'm, I'm just surrendering this to you. I'm lifting this up before you. You know, there's... There's another prison door. In fact, it's the greatest prison door in, in each of our lives. It's, it's the one that keeps us locked up in our sin and separation from God. And from that prison, there is no release except by asking God to forgive you, to cancel the debt of your sin, to make you a new person. And that prison door comes open when you transfer your trust from all the other things you're depending on to Jesus Christ and in him alone and what he accomplished at the cross for you. As we close this morning, if you'd like someone to pray with you, we we would love to do that. All you need to do is ask. We, we would love to pray with you. Pastors and elders are available. Life group leaders are available.
Just ask. Um, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing chapter, this amazing story. And thank you for the fact that you work not just in theory, but you work in history. That uh, these things actually happened in space and time to real people, people like us who prayed in dependence and uh, who surrendered themselves to your power and your authority and your will. Lord, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.